Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome back to So That Happened, the HuffPost politics podcast about occurrences that Happened. transpired <laughs> in the last week. And there have been some great, terrible happenings this week. Before we get started, I want to let all our listeners know our producer, Zach Young, is out in Los Angeles for Politicon, which is a big convention of politicians, commentators, pop culture people. And Zach will be doing a live show recording from the convention floor this Sunday at 6 p.m. You can get tickets at Politicon.com. It's at the Pasadena Convention Center. So all you L.A. fans of the show, get out to Pasadena and check it out. Right now, I am joined in studio by my colleague, S.V. Date. Hey there. And my former colleague and current bureau chief of The Intercept, Ryan Grimm. Hey, Artie. Thank you so much for being here. So, man, they're trying to kill Obamacare. It really seems like they might actually do it this time. A bill passed the House, and now the Senate is trying to pass something. Uh, It's really hard to tell whether they will succeed. Ryan, what do you think they're going to do? Here's the funny thing. There has been no evidence presented over the last six months that they have the votes for a repeal or for a repeal and replace. The only thing that has people confused at this moment is that they managed to cobble together 50 votes to get the Senate to agree to let them put the bill or put a bill, something, but they didn't say what it was, on the floor. It, and you can make fun of McConnell for his uh, inability to get this done so far, but you have to give him credit for this PR sleight of hand. He has managed to get credit for nothing. He's a majority <laughs> leader, controls the floor, and he convinced 50 of his 52 colleagues to let him put nothing on the floor. Now, now I have uh, generally agreed that even though they spent seven years saying, oh, man, we got to repeal Obamacare, they didn't seem to have the will to do it because it meant – taking things away from millions of people and they're kind of chicken when it comes to actually it's also crazy like re- you can't repealing obamacare sounds simple but what you're doing is you're ripping out a section of the healthcare system it is a system right so you're pulling out a part of the system which interacts with all the other pieces now yeah. because it's been in place now for seven eight years yeah, and if I could just add something, I think I've said this before on this exact podcast, maybe not this episode, but um, the Obamacare, as as Republicans love to call it, is a Republican plan. It was cooked up by the Heritage Foundation, right? So it's very hard to get from an already Republican plan that insists on using the convoluted and ridiculous uh, insurance-based, employer-based healthcare system that we have and make it any more – private sector base, right? So, so they painted themselves into a corner and exactly. now they've basically got to go up the wall. Right. And the and their problem is that they basically conflated this 
law with the last president personally. And by calling it Obamacare, right? Who, and who, a, it happens to be black. Who happens to be black and therefore unacceptable to a significant percentage of the Republican base. So here they are. If they called it anything else, it would be fine. If Mitt Romney had won that election uh, in you know, in the primaries in 2008 or in, in, in the in the reelect in 12 and had made this plan, it would be fine. In fact, they had it in Massachusetts under Governor Romney. Yeah, we'd all much, be attacking it right? from the left. Uh, and that's as, still as people still are. Yeah. As people are still are. As they should. Because they're right. Uh, the Republicans say that premiums are too high and deductibles are too high, and they're right. But nothing that the Republicans could possibly do can, can help those situations. Okay, so here's the problem. They, you know, I thought they would never be able to muster support for an actual plan that takes insurance away. And it's we're recording this on Thursday, so some things there's going to be more votes today. Uh, this comment could be obsolete, but it, it seems that they may have finally found a strategy for voting on health care, which is to vote on nothing. It's kind of a Seinfeld approach, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, they 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 cook something, a shell of a bill, up in a back room. Nobody knows what it is, and then they have votes on it. And that's way easier than having used the committee hearing process and having a CBO score. And it's completely hypocritical, of course, because they criticized Obamacare's process. But it's working, at least to the extent that Mitch McConnell won this one procedural vote. Sure. That would be like saying that Eric Cantor, John Boehner, and Mitch McConnell over the last six, seven years um, were working. Like, yeah, they were able to put health care bills on the floor of the House and of the Senate and as recently as 2015 in the Senate and pass the sucker. So if you call that working, then sure, it works. But getting it to a place where when your vote means it's likely to become law is a whole different ballgame. Then it starts to matter what's in it. Well, I mean the the goalpost has moved because in the House, they're like some of the moderates went along with the more conservative bill than they would have liked because they said, well, we'll get this over to the Senate and then they'll fix it up before it comes back and we'll have a vote on the conference version of it here. But now the Senate is saying, well, you know, we'll get this uh, procedural vote done. We'll figure out the bill then. And they're still saying – we're going to fix it on the floor and we'll have another chance to fix it in a potential conference committee, which is where you take separate bills from each chamber and mix them together. And we have seen in the past that that is a way to take crazy stuff out of a bill and then get it the regular version through both chambers with moderate majority support. So do you think the conference – you know that there's a possibility this could happen? You've been covering this. You've been on Capitol Hill all week talking to these guys. I mean anything is possible and people should definitely be be vigilant. But there is nothing magical about a conference committee. Like the House and the Senate have had opportunities to sit down and, and hammer out a bill that both the moderates and the far right could agree to and that they wanted to become law. And they have not been able to do that. And don't be fooled by the House's passage of a bill. Like you said, they only passed that thing because they knew the Senate was going to fix it. Right. They wouldn't have passed that if they thought the next stop was Trump's desk. So there's – so I I mean, sure, anything's possible. But you, so you, you go to a conference committee that has different chairs and different desks. Like you have the same political problems and your political problems are heightened because now we're creeping into 2018. So yeah. – Well, you know, you said an interesting there a minute ago, Artie, about it's hard to take stuff away from people once they have it. And this is the exact same argument the Republicans used in 1964 and 1965 when they're talking about 
inventing Medicaid, right? Lyndon Johnson brought Medicaid, brought Medicare, and people said, oh, no, no, once you do that, uh, we're just creeping towards socialism. We're never going to take it away, and they were right. And if you believe that everyone ought to get health care, Obama has already won. He has won, and that's going to stay because you're right. They're not going to take away health insurance from people who have it now. And even if they inadvertently do in whatever iteration of whatever it is that they pass, guarantee you, by the time of the general election of 2018, they will come back and pass whatever even short-term fix they need to to say, no, 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 everyone who had it under Obamacare has it now. It may right. not be as good. It may be to- more screwed up than the system is now, but they will do that because they're afraid to take stuff away. That right. is correct. And they have all agreed that people with pre-existing conditions should be protected. That's Which a, is huge. That's a sea change. Yeah. yeah. And once you've decided to do that, you have a different health care system than the one that existed pre-Obamacare. And there's just no way around that. And the only way to make that work is with massive government subsidies and regulation or single payer. Now, Ryan, you had another scoop this week that I wanted to talk about. Steve Bannon, the uh, alt-right guy who whispers in the president's ear who thinks that war is inevitable and that you know the apocalypse is around the corner, he wants to tax the rich. Bannon has a, has a fascination with European kind of neo-fascist movements and all, or all, the alt-right of Europe or whatever you would want to call them, the kind of Marine Le Pen – driven elements of it. And over there, they have a completely different type of ethno-populism, which is uh, they take the ethnic nationalism side that that Bannon is into, and then they add a social welfare side. You know, everybody who's French gets all the benefits of being a French citizen and the French state. Marine Le Pen is for single payer. And so Bannon looks weird through the lens of American politics, but he's a very standard kind of right-wing European uh, politician, um, and, that, and those are, those are kind of the politics that he has he has studied. So it, it's not at all it's not at all really surprising. But yeah, he wants uh, his proposal is forty four percent marginal tax rate on people making more than five million dollars. Now, your first five million would be taxed <laughs> at the lower rate. Yeah, but after that, I saw some great people on tour. Why would I make that sixth million? <laughs> if I'm, if they're going to tax me at 44 instead of 39.6. Yeah, for the record, the top marginal tax rate in the U.S. used to be 90%. For the record, almost no one made it. And, almost and, you know, Elvis and, and, Presley did, and he's, he kept writing – well, not writing, but he kept crooning. He did. He didn't stop crooning. And, and you know, and that's an excellent point. Uh, Ryan makes it. It's above a threshold of $5 million. Well, there just isn't that much money to be collected. There just well, it's, not, it's not none. I did some back of the envelope on it. IRS says about 40 – 42,000 people. Right. Out, of more three, than, out of 150 million which, or so. Which, How much money? 8.8% of all the tax dollars, $600 billion. Now, Come on, Sharish. That is such a huge chunk now, of money. You and I always disagree. You that's because you're always wrong, Artie. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not you know? always wrong. You say now, you can't tax the rich and get a huge ton of money. You know, Sharish is right that $200 billion of that would be the in the first $5 million. But still, that's $400 billion that you're hitting for an extra 4.4 points. Uh, which, AKA nearly half a trillion. This is about twenty billion a year and about two hundred billion over ten years. It's not. It's not changing the world. It's, but that's real money. I mean, this is a this is a caricature of an actual tax the rich proposal. It starts at five million. You could really start this at a much lower number. Also, once you're into into this world, you could say, okay, everybody over a million is at forty three. 
Yeah, so I'm sure Paul Ryan really loves this idea, yeah. and it'll be part of tax reform, <laughs> yes. which itself appears to be completely never happening this year. Uh, yes, partly because the president is a well, you keep who saying, says vaccines. You keep saying on. reform, reform. <laughs> Why do you say that word reform? Like they're going to change it? No, no. They want to cut corporate income tax rates, which they can easily do, and they can cut well, the Well, Paul Ryan rate. wants to really reform right. the thing. Well, be, well a, sure he does. It is and reform. That, that, that will not happen. If they change but it the to cuts, just uh, – Yeah, they'll get You cuts. mean you're saying that you think that if they did go ahead and try to get these three lower brackets that they say they want, they wouldn't also wade into the thicket of uh, – you know, deductions and That's such. Correct. Exports yeah. and imports. So they're not really. Well, anyway, they need to pass a budget to do that, and that process is going to complete <laughs> joke. Well, I'm not, uh, do they? I'm not sure they'd have if to. If they yeah. want to get it to the Senate without needing 60 votes, right. and therefore that Democratic support, and they can't decide how much they hate food stamps, so they're not going to do a, a lot. budget. Well, That's simple. no, because these moderates who are so chicken. Farm uh, states. Yeah. Well, it'll yeah. come down to whether the, the, the Freedom Caucus can bully them into just doing it and then kicking over to the Senate. <laughs> so, Ryan, you have another Bannon scoop. Uh, let's Tell me about that yes. before we wrap up here. Yes. And this one will be out soon. Um, so it's a scoop now. Luckily, we're not live. So I'm not scooping myself. He uh, has also told people uh, close to him that he believes that tech platforms like Facebook and Google ought to be regulated like utilities, uh, which is another – kind of uh, populist plank uh, that would be anathema to somebody like Paul Ryan, uh, but I think actually makes perfect sense. And in fact, the person who would agree with him most would be a much younger Mark Zuckerberg, who, if you remember, he used to always refer to Facebook as a social utility. Remember huh. that? Why Now, it's a utility in the sense that like you have it to is be a, on it it's to kind be of, part of society. Well, not exactly because you don't have to. Some be. people aren't on there. Yeah, but some people weirdos. Yeah, well, when I grew up, Normal we got people. we got water from a well. Like that doesn't mean uh, that like water systems are not a natural monopoly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, obviously you can be off Facebook and you can you can use Bing if you want to search the internet. <laughs> but you have the internet. You have access to the internet, which is basically. So a government o- Obama created, and, right, and, right? O- and Obama yeah. tried to Obama did regulate through the FCC internet service providers as utilities. Now, yeah, ironically, so- the administration is trying to undo that. But the argument would be that a social network like Facebook is a natural monopoly in the sense that once it is created, everybody's in it, and it just feeds itself, and so you can't really create create a new one and. The efficiencies of having just one giant one are such that it benefits the public that there just be this giant one. Now, you can have little ones here and there. You can have, like, solar power companies that are competing with a MySpace a, a utility. You can, yeah. MySpace can, uh, you know, go after – what, a garage band thing, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, – but the idea would be that you would then regulate it like utility, which would mean it would have to have price transparency. It would have to have uh, a public good kind of mission – uh, and it, and it couldn't go out and use its power in the marketplace to crush and purchase all of its rivals. Well, these are uh, very tantalizing, wacky, yet also totally reasonable yeah. ideas <laughs> coming out of you know no one but Steve Bannon in the Republican Party would be doing that right now, and uh, no one else probably will do that in the Republican <laughs> Party. Thanks, Steve. Uh, thank you, Ryan Grimm from the Intercept for coming in, and thank you, SV Date. For joining us once again. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about 
work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Again, uh, we'll be right back. And we're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague, Daniel Marins. Hello. Hey, Arthur. How you doing? I'm so great. The Democrats rebranded, and it's incredible. Everyone loves it, which is unusual because usually, you know, they undertake a rebranding effort, and it's there goes those bumbling Democrats, but this time people are happy? They're not sad, and I think that that's a really – Overall, so I'm going to lay out some of the nuances here. Wait, but, wait, wait. What's but the, the what's top this? line? The top line is a better deal, better jobs, better wages, better future. That is the slogan, and it was it had some some sort of edgy economic populist proposals, especially when it comes to drug prices and breaking up trusts and monopolies. And whoa, yeah. So that was pleasing to people, and it came on the heels of a sort of botched pre-rollout, which was this sort of early version of the slogan that leaked without any of the substance behind it. And that version set was called A Better Deal, Better Skills, Better Jobs, Better Wages. And, and people hate when Democrats talk about skills because it's basically a way of crapping on workers for being unemployed and blaming them right. for not having acquired the skills or there, there's this idea of this thing called the skills gap which yeah. you and I have looked at and talked about and dealt with for a bunch of years now which is that a significant contributor to long-term joblessness which is still very real in the economy is is the fact that people don't have the skills they need to fill available jobs and while it's true in some specific cases it is not the the systemic problem that it's made out to be based on empirical reasons. Okay, so what happened this week is Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer got together and looked at the uh, bloodbath of 2016, where they lost sure. the presidency to this incredibly unpopular I mean, I think this guy. was going on for this sort of study that was being done by a number of, of, the, of different House leaders and Senate leaders had been going on for some time, and... But but they they really kind of in, they focused only on economics. Yeah. Their idea was Trump won on championing the working man as a would be populist. We know he has not been, but a would be populist that identified with working class people that neutralized some democratic talking points in the economy, and Democrats may be lost by not emphasizing that as much. That's a pretty. I think that 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 is a line of criticism that is shared by varying wings of the party. So and it's sort of like a, this is an autopsy moment. The Republicans famously had that autopsy. So I want to from uh, 2012. Yeah, I, I want to 
jump into the, the policy of it. But first, I do want to address that point because that's really – that's an interesting point. So I think one of the things that, that got high marks from progressive activists was not even so much the proposal itself, but the fact that it existed, the fact that it didn't use the words Comey and Russia, and that the fact in that in talking about it, Pelosi, Schumer, and a number of other people – seem to acknowledge tremendous accountability on the part of the Democratic Party for the outcome in 2016. Now, yeah, he really was like, we suck. Yeah, and I, and I think I can I can pull up some of the, the best ones. He, he told the Washington Post, when you lose to somebody who has 40% popularity, you don't blame other things, Comey, Russia, you blame yourself. So what did we do wrong? People didn't know what we stood for, just that we were against Trump and still believe that. Yeah. So it's, yeah, right on. So it's a better way, which has a better e- deal. A, a better. I'm sorry. A better way is well, Paul but, Ryan's slogan. Which, by the way, so this does have echoes of Paul Ryan, and but, it does, as you're about to allude to, have echoes to the New Deal, right, where, where right. those were the most important safety net reforms ever undertaken in this country. So Democrats are they getting back to their roots? I guess you should say. I think it's important not just – and I don't think that they were necessarily thinking about it at this level. They were certainly making an allusion to the New Deal. But when when we think about the history of the evolution of the Democratic Party, we're basically talking about in the 20th 20th and 21st century, we're talking about the party of Franklin Roosevelt and then kind of the post-Reagan party of Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. And the latter of those two – was a much more market-friendly party that when they tried to address social ills, they were typically going to do it through public-private partnerships like skills like, like Obamacare, right? Yeah. Training, obviously. Bill Clinton, it was even more. It, it was deregulation and safety net cuts, like right. well, the welfare reform. But the old sort of New Deal era Democratic model is very strong anti-monopolist stance, sort of taking taking a hammer to companies, smashing companies, and and. And na- calling them out by name, not just because of the way they affect prices and affect consumers by the lack of competition, but for how they affect small businesses and, and small town America and workers. And, and so what you heard in, in the proposals and in the rhetoric from specifically, I would say, Chuck Schumer, who was really out in front on this, was a return to some of that, the populist language about the system being rigged, an acknowledgement that the direction of the party under that Clinton-Obama sort of neoliberal era was un- has, has thus far been pretty bad for workers and that that pivot hurt them in 2016. And you also actually you – know, Pro-NAFTA pro specifically, they were hammered for the fact that sure. Bill and Hillary Clinton were the ones who presided over this trade policy change that – Made the factories go away. Yeah, I mean, he he. So this like the, the, this initial rollout didn't address trade as much. The things that it really addressed, it, it, it hammered a bunch of themes that that are progressive the- policies that Democrats have taken up lately, but are still very important to hear from the party's leaders. Well, tell me about fifteen dollar minimum wage, yeah. a trillion dollar infrastructure package, um, protecting Social Security and Medicare, et cetera, et cetera. It also hit some things that please the centrist pro business people, like tax breaks for on the jobs skills training for workers. That's so <laughs> – But but fine. You had Mark Warner at that press conference. You had Third Way uh, praising it. I mean these are, these are things that they can claim. Tax, they did tax breaks to, to hire unemployed workers throughout the Great Recession. 
and yeah. it, that did not work. <laughs> yeah, it simply failed. But look, if if you want to spend money, I, I don't care, right? Because I don't care about the debt. So, um, and that's what you're doing when you're cutting taxes. I'd rather you cut taxes for people, and I'd also, anyway. But to, the, the the interesting thing in this sort of three pronged approach of jobs and of uh, training and skills, and then also. Um, uh, raising people's real income, real pay by reducing household costs, they really went after drug companies. They said they were going to appoint a new price gouging watchdog. They said that they were going to empower Medicare to to negotiate drug prices and that they were going to require drug companies to justify their price increases. They were going to institute stricter standards for corporate mergers. That's the antitrust piece of that. That's very interrelated. They named corporations. I mean, they talked about Luxottica and its monopoly in the glasses market. They talked about airlines. Chuck Schumer admitted that Democrats presided over the merger of Exxon and Mobil and that that was a major mistake. So from a rhetoric perspective, from the perspective of a party and, and, a, and a party's previous standard bearer, Hillary Clinton, who is, who is continuing to, to sort of blame this whole thing on just James Comey's letter undermining her and, and Russian interference, this was an incredible relieving departure from that for many progressive activists. Now yeah, – You did a story. You talked to uh, leftists – Right. Who are harsh critics of the Democratic Party, who were not, uh, who were impressed basically by this rebranding effort. Right, and 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 I think the fact that it, they were impressed by the desire to really go after companies, by the desire to go after health, the healthcare issue in a way that is not just the Obamacare private market model and is looking at, you know, breaking, taking it to the pharma companies, for example. Now, so, so they're talking about letting Medicare. Uh, negotiate drug prices, right. which even Trump has talked sure. about as something that's reasonable. There's no single payer in here, though. There's no right. government right. health insurance. So they didn't go that far from their comfort zone on health care. That's right. That's right. And I don't anticipate that happening just yet. I mean, look, keep in mind that two years ago, Bernie Sanders' $15 minimum wage bill got five co-sponsors. Now it has over 30 and one of them is Chuck Schumer, and another one is Patty Murray, who's the head of the HELP Committee, which has jurisdiction over it. So there, there is movement here, and I anticipate that we will see some unexpected co-sponsors when Sanders rolls his single-payer Senate-side legislation out um, later this summer. But, but what I think was so interesting, and again, the rhetoric here was so important, that Chuck Schumer went on ABC this week on Sunday as part of this media blitz for this rollout and said, look, once we defeat the Obamacare repeal – and Republicans come to the table with us, as he predicted, on stabilizing the individual insurance markets, then we're going to look at single payer. Then we're going to look at things like at least uh, offering a buy-in to Medicare or Medicaid or lowering the Medicare age. And again, big movement on that front. Progre- Some on the far left say still, re- still only rhetoric. Uh, the, well, they're not know, in power. I mean, right. anything they do is going to be rhetoric at this sure. point. So the healthcare stuff, that sounds like there's potentially a plan of action. What about antitrust? You really need to control the government for that to be an actionable policy platform. Well, if, if you want to change, if you want to like expand the Sherman Antitrust Act, which it, it, it sure seemed like they want to do. I mean, they really want to make it harder to merge. And right now, antitrust law emphasizes, based on recent legal precedent, that it has to affect prices. And you have to be able to demonstrate that. And the burden of proof is high. 
So that that's one of the reasons that some of these suits against big tech giants like Amazon have been struggling. So they want to rewrite the laws. That requires legislative control of Congress, um, regulatory control, having an empowered FTC, an empowered DOJ, and even potentially – uh, this watchdog, if Congress were to create it, a new 21st century trust buster, they were, they were talking about creating two new watchdogs, one for drug prices specifically and one for trust busting, then you would then you would then need a president to implement that. Because obviously Trump has, for example, kept the CFPB in place. He's kept – I mean he has a DOJ uh, antitrust division. He has the Federal uh, Trade Commission. He's just – not he has really an, using it. You well, know, maybe he'd like to smash Amazon. <laughs> he frequently maligns them for right. their Washington Post coverage of him. So <laughs> I don't know. It seems unlikely. I mean, well, and, and, and if he did that be- as retaliation for Jeff Bezos' coverage. Yeah, it's not really would... what antitrust did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, sort of a subversion of the rule of law. Look, I, I think that there, there was a little mini confrontation the day after on Tuesday where – the uh, a bunch of really progressive groups have this other thing that they're calling the People's Platform. They're trying to get candidates. They're organizing around it this summer. It includes single payer, free college tuition, automatic voter registration, uh, serious criminal justice reform, environmental justice, which is a very which is a way of sort of dealing with issues like climate change through a racial and class justice lens. And they rolled that out sort of to to some, uh, I guess, crickets on Tuesday. And then there was a moment of conflict, respectfully, and I, and I wish there was more coverage of it. I think with just so much of the, the White House zoo and the healthcare fight, it's difficult. Um, but then there was a moment of tension where, where our revolution in particular and a bunch of folks from National Nurses United, that's, and our revolution is Bernie Sanders' legacy organization, went to deliver the petitions in support of this, this sort of eight-plank, eight or nine-plank platform to the DNC. And the DNC says that as a matter of course, anticipating the demonstration, they put up security barriers because they do that oh. every time. Every time there are demonstrators, they say. Well, now, there's, there's some symbolism for you. Right. But but for folks like you know Nina Turner, the head of Our Revolution, who saw the DNC undermine Bernie Sanders' presidential bid last summer, and there are still some raw feelings there. Obviously, Tom Perez has it not their choice. Keith Ellison, um, it, it was a sign of distrust. I, I think one of the things here is is that there always needs to be a far left flank, and if the Democratic Party moves left. Then there, then there kind of need to be through the nature of the ecosystem, people that are still saying it's not enough. And in fact, the party, if it were smart, would probably like it that way. Well, maybe that's why they left single payer off their platform. Room to grow. All right, Daniel <laughs> Marins, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Buy Verizon stock, and we'll be right back. We're back. This is Arthur Delaney, and I'm joined in studio by my colleague, S.V. Date. Hey, Artie. How are you? I'm terrific. We're here to talk about Jeff Sessions, the attorney general whose president who appointed him has been taking dumps on him <laughs> for like two weeks, like we really have, just yeah. openly saying, Jeff Sessions really sucks. I don't like Jeff Sessions. It's been an <laughs> extremely bizarre spectacle. He's done this in interviews. In tweets, which which I find really shocking, 
because it's like you know written down. It's an official <laughs> White House statement. It is an official it, White House statement. Um, so why is he doing that? Uh, a lot of people are like Jeff Sessions is the Trumpiest of your cabinet officials who's doing the most to enact the Trump agenda. Why is Trump going after this singularly Trumpian part of his administration? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's imagine for a moment that um, Bill Clinton back in whatever, 1993, 1994, had said, you know, Janet Reno, I can't believe you caved and gave a special prosecutor to go look at in Whitewater. You're fired. And I'm going to get someone to get rid of the special prosecutor because you're not doing it. Can you imagine what the outcry would have been from Republicans on the Hill back then in the Republican Party? Well, that's kind of exactly what's happening right now. Now, they impeached him without him having done that. Republicans impeached Bill Clinton just for letting the special prosecutor – for not interfering with the special prosecutor. <laughs> well, yeah, right. Uh, ultimately, they impeached him on some – you know, relatively random thing that he found in the course of looking at Whitewater, which turned out to be a mess, but probably nothing, you know, that Clinton was guilty uh, on a crime for. Here, what we have is just amazing that Donald Trump admittedly, admittedly fired the FBI director because of his investigation into the Russia. Trump, Trump said that was the <laughs> he reason. He said that was the reason. Out loud. He said it on NBC. And then he told the Russians in the Oval Office that this was <laughs> that this relieves a lot of pressure off me now that I got rid of that nut job Comey. And now he's mad because because um, Attorney General Jeff Sessions recused himself from the entire Russia investigation way back in March. And in Trump's view, it, it appears uh, you're a bad Attorney General because you didn't protect me from this thing. In fact, he said exactly that much to the Wall Street Journal the other day. He said, um, we wouldn't even be talking about Russia right now if Sessions hadn't recused himself, i.e. if Sessions had quashed that investigation, strangled it in the crib, we, I wouldn't be bothered by this friggin' Russia stuff going on. How is that not obstruction of justice? I'm, I'm mystified that among all the other stuff going on, who's who in the West Wing, Anthony Scaramucci, Brian Hello? Our president is wants to kill FBI investigation and is mad that the attorney general cannot. Uh, this may be an arcane uh, processy question, but how does the recusal actually prevent Jeff Sessions from interfering, or does the fact that he recused merely indicate that he would strongly prefer not to? Well, no. The recusal means that at this time he cannot fire the the, and it's not a independent prosecutor in this case. It's a special. Council, so uh, he could be fired by by the head of the the Justice Department, which right now is is Jeff Sessions. But Sessions has already said that he will not be part of that. Therefore, if Donald Trump can get a new Attorney General who will get rid of Robert Mueller, that could happen. We could get rid of uh, we, the United States, could no longer have an investigation into. Uh, at least a criminal investigation into the the Russian possible collusion with the Trump campaign. Now, the reason everyone thinks Trump is taking dumps on his attorney general is that it's an effort to convince him to resign on his own. Right. That seems to be uh, 
Well, it's hard to tell with the president exactly what he's thinking at any given moment. He's just mad. He's mad. He sees things on TV and he tweets and, and then you know that happens. But remember, he can fire the attorney general at any time for any reason. Uh, uh, Mr. Sessions, I didn't like your tie. I'm sorry, but your services are no longer required. He could do that, and he's not. And it's kind of fascinating to see this this anger boil up in him and yet not have the whatever, the uh, courage, the uh, the stones to actually come out and actually fire him because then that's on Donald Trump if right. that happens, right? But remember here now, even if he – were to cajole Jeff Sessions into quitting, that doesn't necessarily make his problems go away because a new attorney general would have to be confirmed by the United States Senate. Chuck Grassley, who is the senator from Iowa, who is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, has already made it plain that, no, we're not going to be confirming an attorney general this year. Uh, He he put that out there yesterday, I believe. And so – we would have the acting – On Wednesday, he said that. That's right. Uh, and so at that point, you would have the deputy attorney general, who's the one who appointed the special counsel, Robert Mueller, in the first place, become the acting AG unless Trump were to appoint somebody now, else. Now, the Washington Post reported that Trump is thinking, maybe I could get rid of Jeff Sessions and then have a recess appointment, yeah. which means he would bypass the confirmation process – Right. And just appoint someone who would serve until the end of a term. but The, the end of this Congress, correct. Right. Yeah. But Democrats – He may want to consult uh, Barack Obama how that works out because uh, I think there's Supreme Court case law on this now because of a couple of appointments that President Obama made, uh, which were overruled by the Supreme Court that said, no, it, it's not up to you to decide when the Senate is or is not in session. It's up to the Senate to decide. And if the Senate says that they're in session with these – Pro forma. Um, they have someone show up in the morning and say, exactly. we're here. And they, they do the, the prayer, the flag, and then they leave. And, and they did that for years under President Obama to prevent him from making recess appointments. And then he tried to do it. And he did it anyway, and it was overturned. So, so, oh, so President Obama inadvertently left a very convenient bit of uh, precedent for this exact situation. So if, this, right. if the Senate's going to say we're not adjourned and Democrats can do that on their own. Correct. Uh, he cannot do a recess appointment, so he's stuck. He is stuck. I mean, the, yeah, it, a motion to adjourn would need uh, – it can be filibustered and yeah. you're not going to get past you know, 52 Republican votes in order to get there. So. Now, what's what really is striking to me about this session situation, you know, aside from the fact that it's really weird and sort of amusing that this loyal Trump person is being crapped upon, uh, you know, entirely <laughs> predictably in one sense since he craps on everyone – who subordinates themselves to him is is the idea that see that that if Trump thinks he needs to get rid of Jeff Sessions, he thinks he's in real trouble. Yeah, like oh, if yeah. there's nothing to worry about, just let the investigation it's, play it, its course. It's interesting that Sessions, remember, recused himself in March, I believe, and it's now uh, July. So what happened between now and then? to re-enrage the president because he was mad when this first happened. That, but this he, is a good point right? because the recusal was so long ago. It right. isn't immediately clear by on its own how recusal yeah. is this thing that hurts Trump. Right, except for this one thing that happened last week. The uh, The Washington Post reported that, that the special counsel, Robert Mueller, is actually thinking or is in the process of looking at Donald Trump's tax returns to see about possible Russia connections in those. 
Now, remember, Donald Trump once upon a time promised to release his tax returns and then said, oh, they'll be released after a routine audit. And now it's basically said, no, you will never see my tax returns ever. Thank you very much. I'm already president. Uh, if this information is in there that somehow ties the president to Russia and lays the, the, the motive for what is going on between Russia and the president, because, you, you know, during the campaign, the only person – that the president spoke highly of every single time was Vladimir Putin, yeah. basically the dictator of Russia. Now, what's that about? How does that happen when nobody else seems to get this kind of praise from him? Yeah, when we were back in the smoke but no fire stage of the supposed Russia collusion, right. the hypothetical reason that it was worth looking into – or you know, one of the hypothetical reasons was always that there was something in the Trump family finances – Linking them or indebting them right. to someone or something in Russia, so yeah. that could be in Trump's tax returns. Uh, well, absolutely, and this is not some random thing that's out totally out of the blue. I mean, the Russians are very good at laundering money and getting money to people who they favor to not necessarily do their bidding, but at least maybe quell opposition to what they're doing. And so Russia has a big interest in ending the sanctions in Ukraine. Huge interest. There's a lot of people with a lot of money tied up, and uh, it would help them a lot. Now, Republicans in Congress have really risen up, I think maybe for the first time, uh, for, for, for a significant number of Republicans to say, no, Trump, you are not going to get rid of Jeff Sessions. We support Jeff Sessions. You're crossing a line here. And after that started happening earlier this week, it began to seem as though the, the leaks coming out of the White House were reflective of Trump not really wanting to go through with it. Well, <clears throat> Trump, despite the TV show that he was in – by the way, those scripts were written for him large. Let's remember that. Right? You're he fired. Wasn't a, yeah. He was not actually this hugely successful businessman. He just played one on TV. Right. Well, we'll okay? get back to that. Right? Yeah. Okay. So – he didn't actually like firing people. He had a very small, closely knit family business where his children played, you know, outsized roles in what was going on. They haven't really done much in terms of actual construction in years. They mainly put their names, the family name on stuff and collect rent. That's what he does. That's what he's been doing. It's not a hard business. And so for him now to actually be faced with taking the consequences for firing somebody when he doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. We're seeing right now how he's behaving. He's afraid to do it. Yeah, Mitt Romney could have done it. All right, SV Date, <laughs> thanks so much for joining it's me. been my pleasure. All right, we'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney. And this week, we were joined by The Intercept's Ryan Grimm, as well as our HuffPost colleagues, S.V. Date and Daniel Marins. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to So That Happened at HuffPost.com. Don't be shy. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. 
It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.